Well, we continue our series on the pastoral epistles, and we continue this morning in 1 Timothy, the third chapter, the first seven verses, which deals with the qualifications of elders in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first seven verses. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God, for giving to us your inerrant word, we praise you and ask that your Holy Spirit will work within our hearts, that we may be believing and repenting sinners for moral qualifications that are found with elders all of us Christians would see in our lives by the work of your Spirit. And we pray that you will grant us grace, that we may be wise in the administration of the work of your church, which has been entrusted to the eldership, and that you will help this congregation to be wise so that future generations will continue to hear the word of God proclaimed and be well governed as you have appointed in your word. May someone here who was lost and undone today see within this passage that your people are a family of God and that they need this God as Father, they need the Son as Savior, they need the Holy Spirit to apply that great work of Jesus in the saving of sinners to their hearts, and that they need also to be a part of the family of God. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, I would begin with this question. Do you see how important this passage is. I have always had the impression when ministers preach on the church that somehow many Christians today just turn it off. They don't see how important it is, but it's absolutely essential. This is God's word and it is his command to his church today. The church is called to recognize those who are gifted and qualified for office in his church. And if a church is badly governed It is usually its own fault for ignoring texts such as this one and Titus 1 also in which we find the qualification of elders. The congregation then, as a rule, will not rise above the spiritual maturity maturity of her leadership. The congregation will not, as a rule, rise above the spiritual maturity of her teaching, ruling elders, and her deacons. And so we are given clear directions here. There are two offices that continue until Christ comes again in the church. That is the office of elder 
and the office of deacon. Today we're looking at the office of elder and the qualifications that are given for that office. The office of elder, by the way, goes back to the time of Moses, as was read this morning. Wise men who were selected from the congregation to actually rule and to administer the law of God, to adjudicate it among the people of God. Moses was not to carry that burden alone. And we also find that of elders, there are two sorts. 1 Timothy 5.17, I think, makes that distinction for us. There are those elders whose chief and primary responsibility it is to rule and to govern in the church, and there are those elders whose chief and primary responsibility it is to preach and to teach the Word of God in the church, what we call ministers and generally pastors. It's very telling, by the way, that in Ephesians 4.11, pastor-teacher, that this is connected. It's not pastor, comma, teacher, but pastor-teacher. If a man is a teaching elder, if he is a pastor in that sense, then he must be a teacher of the Word of God. So to sum up what we're saying here, your leaders largely determine the church locally. Your leaders will determine the spiritual pace. Your leaders will determine the direction. Your leaders will determine the future of this congregation. But also, we are a Presbyterian church because we believe the Bible teaches that polity, Your ruling elders in particular with your teaching elders will determine the presbytery and then will determine the denomination as a whole. Had wise men been chosen who understood the word of God, who submitted their lives to it, who had really believed the confession of faith of the Presbyterian church, then the northern Presbyterian church, for example, would never have apostatized or turned away from the faith. Congregations were led that way by teaching and ruling elders who did not believe the truth or who did not have discernment and were very unwise in understanding the times. And so it is extremely important. You will remember that the Apostle Paul spent three years in the establishment of this church in Ephesus. And once again, I want to remind you that when he had that tearful goodbye with the elders, He told them this in Acts 20, and remember, this is Ephesus. Timothy is being left in this church that was founded by God through the Apostle Paul, and this is what Paul said. He says to the elders, be careful. This is Acts 20, verse 28. Be careful. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says to the elders, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And it's amazing to me, absolutely astounding, how many churches ignore the clear teaching of Paul the Apostle found in this passage about qualifications of its leaders, its elders. Now before we begin looking at this text and unpacking the text in some depth and detail, I want you to notice with me that this is one of the five 
faithful sayings of the pastoral epistles. Do you remember how we saw that in 1 Timothy, in Titus, and in 2 Timothy, in terms of their writing order, that there were in the pastoral epistles faithful sayings? The first one, of course, is found in chapter 1, verse 15. Look at it again. The saying is trustworthy and deserving, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. The second one is here in chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. And just to mention, in chapter 4, verse 9, in 2 Timothy 2, 11, and in Titus 3, 8, we have a total of five faithful sayings. Do you remember what those sayings were? Uh, they were sayings that were, were slogans in the church that the people of God had picked up, that they were using in their conversation one with another, and that they would pass down to generations yet to come. They would say, oh, it's a faithful saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And don't you see that that one deals with the work of Christ and his atoning death and his salvation through the cross? Doesn't that then heighten our view of the place of church government when the next faithful saying is a faithful saying about aspiring to the office of elder in the church? This is a faithful saying worthy of acceptance. This formula in use in the early church commending the office of elder, elder. And so do we value it? It should heighten our appreciation. Now the first thing we want to see then as we turn to chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 is that aspiring to the office of elder is the right thing for godly men who are qualified. He says this in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer he desires a noble task. Now, the word he uses here for overseer is episkopos. We derive the word overseer, the word bishop, from this word. The other word that is used for elder in the New Testament is presbyteros, from which we derive our term Presbyterian, elder, if you will. Now, these are two different names for the same office. Uh, in Acts 20, 17 through 28, the terms are used interchangeably. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, the terms are used interchangeably. And in the book of Philippians chapter 1, we read of overseers and deacons. So there are two offices in the church, overseers, elders, deacons, simply different words used to describe it. Episcopos emphasizes the responsibility of the eldership to rule in the church. What are the duties? If we had time to read through the New Testament as a whole, we would find that if he is a teaching elder, his first responsibility is to give himself over to prayer and the study of the scriptures and preaching and teaching. The elders are to protect the flock, Acts 20, 29 through 31. They are to be examples to the flock, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. They are to feed the flock, 1 Peter 5, 2. They are to visit the needy, James 1.27, which is for everyone, but certainly applicable to the elder. They are to pray for the sick when called upon to do so, James 5.14, 
And in many places in the New Testament, we see that elders are responsible for administering discipline in the church. The nature of that office is seen here in these first verses. And first of all, to notice, it is right for a man that he, if he has certain gifts, should aspire to the office. Look at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, remember that means elder, he desires a noble task. It's right for a man if he has certain gifts to aspire to this office. Two, two words are used here. One is reach out for himself, and the other is if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires that word desire, that word desire, epithume, means passion. It is right for the man to reach out for this office and to do so with a passionate heart. With a passion for the glory of God, with a passion for Christ's church, with a passion for the gospel of Christ, it is right for the elder to reach for this office with passion. From right motives, showing passion for Christ and his church, men should aspire to the office of elder. Now, this is from the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can give it. I remember well the night that I was converted. I was 13 years old. And that very night, I gathered other young people around me, and I opened the Bible and began to teach them. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I knew nothing about the Bible. But I had an immediate passion to take the Word of God and to teach others the Word of God that has never diminished but only grown stronger over time. That's the kind of passion of which we speak in this passage. This is what Paul is talking about. It's Holy Spirit produced. It's not something that a man can work up, even though there may be times in which there's a low ebb and we need to strengthen that passion once again. But it's an office of oversight, episkopos. Elders are to oversee, they are to rule, they are to lead, they are to set the pace spiritually for the church. And notice that it's work. Look at it. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task or a noble work. It's work. It's work for the teaching elder. It's work for the ruling elder. Shepherding people is work. The time in which I see our ruling elders most broken are those times in which it is necessary for the glory of God and the good of of a, a fallen sinner to administer discipline for his recovery It is a time of weeping and brokenness, a time that is work indeed. But it is a noble work, he says. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. It's an excellent task, a noble task, because we are feeding the flock of God and shepherding the flock of God purchased with Christ's own blood. So, it is something for which men with certain gifts should aspire. But also, and this is where we spend most of our time, the Apostle Paul unpacks in this passage the qualifications for the office of ruling and teaching elder. Now listen, there are many saved men and many sound men in the church, but not all are called, gifted, or qualified to minister God's word or to rule in Christ's church. Largely, the Apostle Paul is focused here on moral qualifications. 
that are developed by the Holy Spirit. It's all of grace. It's Christ's provision for His church. But not everyone is going to have these gifts developed to the degree to which he should be considered for eldership in the church of Christ. Now let's begin to look at the characteristics. And you must have your Bibles open. First of all, there's an overall moral characteristic that we found in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The word means not to be taken hold upon. It's translated in other places, irreproachable. An elder must be irreproachable. That is to say, looking into his life, you see maturity, you see faithfulness, you see consistent Christian living, you do not see perfection. Never will you find any man who has all of these qualifications in perfection, but you see them here. You see that this man, you can look at that man and say he's faithful, he's consistent, he lives an irreproachable life. This man perhaps should be an elder in Christ's church. Now let me notice something in passing with you that's important in light of what we preached last week. All the adjectives that are in this list in the Greek New Testament are masculine. The word episkopos, overseer, is masculine. One of the characteristics and responsibilities is that he's the husband of one wife and no woman can do that. And it takes us back to what we read in chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. And he grounds this in creation, not in culture. So the nature of the office requires that an elder be a man. There is no biblical justification, and if we believe that the Bible is our authority under which we live, there is no biblical justification for this rush in the church of Christ today to ordain women to teaching and ruling eldership in the church. It's just not there. Indeed, the opposite is there. Just as the man is the head of his home, God has appointed men to lead and direct and rule the household of faith. So, the overall moral characteristic for elders who are men is that they be irreproachable. Secondly, there are marital qualifications. We find this as we go on in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Now, there's a great deal of discussion about what this means. Uh, There are some New Testament exegetes that believe this means that he must not be involved in polygamy, that he must not have many wives. But you know, in 1 Timothy 5, 9, we read, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And we don't consider polygamy there. It's the very same Greek construction, just switching the words. Also, in my investigations, I have once again reminded myself that polygamy was not a great problem in the Roman world. This was an Old Testament issue, but it was not a great problem in the Roman world. The language itself doesn't demand that, not exclusively anyway. A second view is that when it says that the man must be a husband of one wife, a second view is that the man must never have been divorced. Divorce was easily procured among the Romans and among the Jews, And Paul has addressed divorce in other places, and he could easily have said an elder must not ever have been divorced, but he doesn't say that. The third view, I think, is the correct one. The literal reading of husband of one wife in the Greek text is this, he must be a one woman's man. 
a one woman's man. It is the moral quality of being faithful to his wife. Now, many married men in Roman society, and certainly this would have been true in Ephesus without doubt, had women on the side, and they broke the seventh commandment. And that could include polygamy, it could include concubinage, it could include sexual indulgence of all kinds, promiscuity, wrongful divorce. But positively, I think what the Apostle Paul is underscoring here is that the qualification of the man who is to be an elder in the church is that he must be devoted to his wife. There are many sisters, many daughters, many friends, but one wife, and he must be devoted to his wife. Of course that means since the man's conversion. I don't think there's any question of that. So there's this marital qualification. But then there are what we might call mental qualifications. Uh, This is kind of a loose organization, but I think you'll see where I'm going. As we move on in verse 2, we see some of these characteristics. Beginning in verse 2 again, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So among the mental qualifications, an elder must be sober-minded. That means sound in judgment. For example, he would not have his head turned by false teaching, which is happening in Ephesus. And Paul said it would happen. Your elders need to be men of such sober and sound judgment that their heads won't be turned by the new perspective on Paul, by the emerging church issues. They need to be men whose heads won't be turned by unsound teaching. They are sound in their judgment about doctrine and other things. Next mental qualification is that they are self-controlled, sophrona. Kent says, it is a quality of mind which is serious, earnest, sound. Serious, earnest, sound. An elder must not be a clown. It doesn't mean he can't laugh, it doesn't mean he doesn't have a sense of humor, but he needs at base to be a serious, earnest man. A man who will do what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The elder focuses there. He's sound in judgment and he is self-controlled. But also he is respectable, it says here in the ESV. You see, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, the word cosmion. It means an orderly person, well-behaved, virtuous, it's sometimes translated. It's the quality that when you look at this person, you can say he's to be respected because of the way in which he lives. His habits of life are orderly habits. He has a well-ordered mind because the eldership is no place for one whose life is one of constant confusion who's unorganized, who is regularly failing to achieve his goals. He needs to have an orderly life. Next, we find that he is to be a hospitable man. Originally, the word meant loving strangers, but obviously the word takes on a broader meaning, and it simply means that he has the mental and heart attitude of being hospitable. 
Now, we're not talking here simply about uh, entertaining people around the table. That's a good thing, and it might show itself in that way. But if you're going to shepherd people, the mental and heart attitude must be a welcoming attitude. So, for example, when someone sits with you, you're concerned with that person at that time, not the next thing that has to be done. You have a welcoming, warm, hospitable heart. It may take many forms, but that's the heart. And then the elder is to be able to teach. That's at the end of verse 2, able to teach, didaktion. Now, again, in 1 Timothy 5, 17, we find that this is on different levels. There are those men who are called strictly to focus their attention on teaching and preaching. There are those men who are called strictly to focus on ruling eldership. But in one way or another, every elder, teaching and ruler, is a teacher. To different degrees, we must be able to teach. How do we pass on the faith, which is what Timothy is all about? How do we pass down the good deposit if we are not able to teach others? All elders must have a part in feeding the flock, passing down the faith. 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy are written because the apostles are dying. And the apostles will no longer be there to give authoritative structure and rule to the church. And so there is this command to pass on to faithful men these truths and these commitments. Men must be apt to teach. Then we see what we might call personal traits. And we find them here in verse 3. Look at it. Not a drunkard. They're all in the negative. Not a drunkard. Not violent. But gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Why these personal traits? Why these negatives? You know, we don't like to hear negatives nowadays. They're all over the Bible. Uh, Why these personal traits? Because truth must be modeled. That's why. So he must not be a drunkard. The word literally means not beside wine. He's not a man who lingers over his cup. He's not a man who lingers at a bar. He's not a man who lingers over liquor. In this case, wine or some other controlling substance. Why? Because it dishonors Christ, because it will control his life, it will dull his judgment, and it leads to deeper sin. In Proverbs 31, we read a very interesting passage about this. It's not talking about elders, but it is talking about leaders. And it says in Proverbs 31, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So you must not have leaders that are drunkards, given to alcohol. And then we are also finding another personal trait next. They are not violent but gentle. Not violent but gentle. The word actually means uh, not given to the use of their fists. You know, we do get into some pretty hot discussions sometimes. Uh, And we've never broken out into any fistfights, thank the Lord. But uh, the point here is that an elder must not be pugnacious. He must be gentle. He must be patient. He must be forbearing. He must avoid unnecessary strife. He shouldn't be a man who's always bringing strife into the picture. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, it says. 
amakon, not contentious. One of the commentators says he will not insist on his rights. He keeps his temper under control. And then it says that the elder must not be a lover of money, literally a lover of silver. Why? Because his gaze is on a greater reward. What is that reward? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, in which Peter addresses the eldership of the church. 1 Peter chapter 5. In which Peter says in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he's talking to the eldership. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the ruling elder, the teaching elder, is not concerned to live for money. There must be payment in order to live. That's another question. But he must not live for money because he's living for the glory of God. In other words, folks, there are times when the teaching or ruling elder is not going to please anybody. So not only is he not to live for money, he's not to live for anything but the glory of God. He's to be motivated by desire to serve Christ. He keeps his gaze on the shepherd, the real elder, the true shepherd that will return and bring that unfading crown to those elders as they are faithful. He's not a covetous man. Many a faithful minister has chosen poverty when it was required to fulfill his calling. But then will you also notice that he addresses the home life in verses 4 and 5. Let's read it. He, speaking of the elder, the episkopos, the overseer, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church. So how a man leads his home shows in how and how he leads his children and how he leads his wife and this in turn shows in how he's going to lead the church. Because we read in this passage this question, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he share how will he care for God's church? So when he has children at home, they must be under control. That does not mean that the elder will have perfect children. The issue is the man's ability to rule. The father must rule with dignity, we are told. He must be wise. He must be tender. He must be firm. He must be loving. He must expect and receive obedience. That's his home life. Just as his personal life must be well-ordered, his home life also must be well-ordered. And then he must have mature experience. Verse 6, look at it. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He must not be a recent convert. The word here, novice, neophyton, means he must not be newly planted. He must not be a newly planted convert. 
He must have time to mature, time to grow. He must be mature in the faith before hands are laid upon him in ordination. Now, the Ephesian church has existed for 12 years, and he writes this to the apostle. In Crete, by the way, we don't have this in the list in Titus 1, because Crete is going to be a newly established congregation. But in most instances, and certainly in our case, we must never, ever look for novices to fulfill the office of elder. Why? Because of the danger of pride. Look how it reads. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The danger of pride, being puffed up, being conceited. And it does not mean here the judgment that that the devil brings upon the novice. It means the judgment that the devil himself has experienced. That's what Paul means. The devil who was cast down because of his pride. Thomas Adams summarizes this well. Enter pride, exit wisdom. Enter pride, exit wisdom. So if we have elders who are novices, they may likely become prideful. Enter pride, exit wisdom. And above all, elders must be wise men. They also must have good reputation in the community. Verse 7 Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. He must have an unbesmirched reputation in the world. That doesn't mean that there will not be times in which the world bears witness falsely against him. That's not the point. The point is, he does not have glaring character faults that would lead to disgrace in Christ's church. So the unbelieving world looking at the elder would not be able to say, you know, that man is so filled with covetousness. He is so full of the love of money. He is so full of pride. How can he be an elder in that church? There must not be glaring character faults that may lead to the disgrace of Christ's name in the church. As E.K. Simpson put it, a pastor's life is vocal either for good or ill. And that's true of all of our leaders. Well, that's the list. And don't you think my heart's been plowed this week? What a list. What a list. And no one but the Lord Jesus Christ embodies fully and completely and perfectly these moral qualifications, yet we set aside this list at our peril. So having gone through the list of these moral qualifications, I want to bring these thoughts to you. First, do you see, I'm talking to us as a congregation, don't think this is just for the elders. Do you see how essential for a teaching elder and ruling elder to be biblically qualified and for you as a congregation to seek to be very, very careful in electing men to that office who have these qualifications. God produces such men by His grace. and We are none of us excluded from the moral qualifications we find here. None of us. But our ruling elders and teaching elders, do you see how essential this is to the rule of Christ's church? Secondly, I am speaking to the teaching and ruling elders here. 
In verse 1, we read, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Remember that word desire means you have passion for it. You're passionate for it. Now, some of you elders may have started with a passion, and things get hard, and things get heavy, and the decisions are difficult, and shepherding people is hard, and counseling situations are perplexing, and discipline is grueling, and maybe you've lost some of that passion. Well, we all have to deal with that. One of the places to which I sometimes turn is Richard Baxter's The Reformed Pastor, and here's what he says to me as a preacher, but I think you can apply this to your own lives as well. He says in his The Reformed Pastor, be careful that your graces are kept in vigorous and lively exercise, and that you preach to yourselves the sermons which you study before you preach them to others. I confess, I must speak, speak it by lamentable experience, that I publish to my flock the distempers of my own soul. When I let my heart grow cold, my preaching is cold, and when it is confused, my preaching is confused. And so when I can oft observe also in the best of my hearers that when I have grown cold in preaching, my hearers have grown cold too. And the next prayers which I've heard from them have been too like my preaching. We are the nurses of Christ's little ones. If we forbear taking food ourselves, we shall famish them. It will soon be visible in their leanness and dull discharge of their several duties. If we let our love decline, we are not like to raise up theirs. If we abate our holy care and fear, it will appear in our preaching. If the matter show it not, the manner will. If we feed on unwholesome food, either errors or fruitless controversies, our hearers are like to fare the worse for it. Whereas if we abound in faith and love and zeal, how would it overflow to the refreshing of our congregations, and how would it appear in the increase of the same graces in them? O brethren, watch therefore over your own hearts. Keep out lusts and passions and worldly inclinations. Keep up the life of faith and love and zeal. Be much at home and be much with God. If it be not your daily business to study your own heart and to subdue corruption and walk with God, if you make not this a work to which you constantly attend, all will go wrong and you will starve your hearers. Or if you have an, an affected fervency, that is a put-on fervency, you cannot expect a blessing to attend it from on high. Above all, be much in secret prayer and meditation. For your people's sakes, therefore, look to your hearts. A minister should take some special pains with his heart before he is to go to the congregation. And Richard Baxter's entire book is like that. And he really rakes me over the coals, and I love it. Because I want my heart exposed. I want it. I have to have it. I need it. I struggle with the same temptations you do. So if you're an elder here, teaching or ruling, and that passion is subsiding, get on your knees, return to the Lord, go to Him and ask Him to renew it. Believe and repent daily. Richard Baxter said, or it was said of him, 
He preached as a dying man to dying men. And I think we need to minister that way to our flocks. Also, it's a demanding calling. For teaching elders, it's a demanding calling. If you'll look over at chapter 4 of this book, look at what it says in verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, 11 and following, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. For the teaching elder, it is a demanding calling. For the ruling elder, it is a demanding calling because it requires self-denial, discipline, love, The reason I'm saying this is for this reason. If it is a demanding calling, if it is a high and a good calling, if this is what the Lord calls elders to in his church, then you can expect, elder, to have greater temptation than the people you shepherd. Did you ever think about that? You can expect your temptations to be stronger, greater, and more subtle than the people you shepherd. People, pray for your leaders. And then, I would say on the basis of this text, congregation, be warned. Be thoroughly warned. Because the wrong people were attempting to rise to leadership in Ephesus. In Acts 20, Paul says that is going to happen. We've already seen in verse 20 of chapter 1, that Hymenaeus and Alexander have been excommunicated because they made shipwreck of their faith. Obviously, they were trying to arise to leadership, and they had no right to be leaders in the church. You know that passage in Hosea, like people like priests? In other words, the people are going to be like their leaders. So look at the church and ask the question, are we preparing godly leaders? Are we preparing qualified men? Because your spiritual lives, your spiritual lives, in large measure, will be in the hands of your elders. Turn to Jeremiah. Let's look at a few passages. I'm not going to say anything about the context except to say in all of these passages, Jeremiah is concerned with shepherds, leaders, Teachers, prophets, priests. And in Jeremiah 2, verse 8, we read, Jeremiah 2, verse 8. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds, you see that? The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. 
Now turn to chapter 12 of Jeremiah. And there you see in verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. That's what the shepherds did. Chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 15. And these are just a few examples. Jeremiah 23, 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. So we have a responsibility of shepherding those people whose lives have been purchased with Christ's own blood to encourage them in the promises of God, to point them to the atonement, to help them know they have a great high priest, to help them live faithfully in this fallen world. The great Puritan Cotton Mather put it this way about preaching. He said, The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. But isn't that the goal of the elder as well? To take that very same word and to see that through the Spirit of the Lord, the dominion of God is restored His throne is restored in the hearts and lives of fallen men. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher, I could add the office of a Christian ruling elder, is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. So you come to a text like this and maybe you read over it or you hear preaching about the church and you think it's not important. It's the shepherds throughout redemptive history who have either rightly or wrongly led the people of God, taught them truth or taught them error, led them into godliness or led them away from godliness. And usually it's small, incremental, like the proverbial frog in the boiling water. A well-ordered church. You say, what does this have to do with the gospel? Everything. Because a well-ordered church in which her goal is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the hearts of men. A well-ordered church, with this as her goal, is a blow to Satan's kingdom. And if we are to evangelize the lost in our community, support missionaries throughout the world, teach our children the faith, catechize, proclaim, be faithful for generations to come, then it is required of us that we have men in the pulpits that are faithful men, not perfect men. Faithful men. Men like you that struggle with temptation and sin, but men in whose hearts the Holy Spirit works to mature them and to qualify them. And that we have elders who are qualified in their hearts to serve in this manner. And so, O people of God, will you pray that this will be the goal of all of our officers in this church? 
Will you pray that this be the result of ministry among us in this church? The purpose of order in the church of Christ. The purpose of preaching. The preaching of teaching. The purpose of teaching. The purpose of rule is to exalt Jesus. To exalt Christ. And so will you pray and live that this be so? Will you? It's a little weak, but I think you mean it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.